It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And unfortunately, today we have to save you from an active shooter. And the world is still rippling from the effects of what happened in Uvalde, Texas. And parents, teachers, kids, law enforcement, everyone just scratching their head trying to make sense of a tragedy that, you know, really on on so many different levels feels like it could have been prevented. You know, maybe the shooter could have been teased out from his the the troubled stew that was brewing in his mind. And uh, he could have been spotted sooner by his family, classmates, counselors, teachers, and, you know, gotten the help that he obviously needed. Uh, You know, there have been a lot of conversations about gun control and raising the age limit uh, for people to buy weapons, especially people are talking about AR-15s. A lot of people who before were pretty rational Second Amendmenters are talking about banning AR-15s altogether. But maybe we can come at it from a different angle. If you are in the situation where the shooter has not been identified, the shooter has gotten most likely his hands on a weapon what do you do how do you save yourself how do you protect other people once that has already happened so obviously it is best to identify these little unfuckable creeps before they get their hands on a gun and get into a social setting uh, where they can take too many lives uh, but if if that hasn't happened, if the identification process hasn't been thorough, then what do you do if you are in this situation? Joining me now, he has probably more experience in uh, stopping and identifying active shooters than just about anyone. Uh, his name is Hector Delgado. He's a retired U.S. Navy SEAL. He served with SEAL teams 2, 3, 4, 18. The enemy can eat a ween. Uh, He also was a Homeland Security special agent. He has been in the Middle East, Europe, Africa, South America, you name it. He's done a tour of duty there. And um, he uh, he works with Homeland Security and their investigations in Florida. Also a member of the board of directors at the National Navy SEAL Museum, which is fantastic. So uh, Thank you for your service, first and foremost, Hector, but also thank you for being here today to talk about something where you actually have a great deal of expertise. So when you look at what happened in Uvalde, what is the first thing that occurs to you? Well, thank you. First of all, it's an honor to be here with you and to share uh, my experiences and, of course, uh, unfortunate circumstances that we have to have this discussion. But, uh, you know, first of all, looking at Uvalde, as a, a retired law enforcement officer, we never want to pass judgment immediately, but it's clear at this point that there was a failure. There was a failure to act. There's a failure to respond. And uh, that's the first thing I realized that uh, that was the initial breakdown. And it's it's heartbreaking because, you know, these kids who have been shot, 
you know, they're little kids. They've got phones. They're calling their parents. They're calling 911 desperate for help. And some of them didn't make it. You know, they, they bled out when law enforcement could have gone in. And, you know, obviously the shooters, especially the most recent ones, they all fit the same mold. You know, they're disturbed. They're ostracized from at least one parent. Uh, they're misogynistic, very frustrated with women. So how do you identify someone who is so dangerous, so potentially dangerous that they could do this, they could advertise it versus a kid who's just maybe a little depressed and likes video games and, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be on law enforcement radar. How do you identify them? Yeah. You know, there's a, I used to, you know, really dig into profiling. And then I went back and said, look, these crazies, it's going to happen. How can we respond? How can we deter? But looking at some of these triggers, uh, is it cyberbullying? Is it broken homes? Is it uh, having the ability to answer your question? How do you identify it? You know, use the technology to data mine. And, and again, I'm, you know, I, I respect privacy, but there's got to be a point where you can have the opportunity to uh, have those keywords that are popping up uh, during this chatter where these uh, psychos are, are talking to their girlfriend or they're speaking to someone and, and basically verbalizing uh, what they're going to do. And, and sending photos. And, and these guys, you got to remember, these crazies, they take notes. They come prepared. They have lots of magazines. They've done their homework. They, they, they know the, the way that they're going to want to go in on the primary route or the secondary route or tertiary. And they're, they're driven to execute. And they're competing with the last shooter. You know, usually they're not going in to kill Mrs. Smith in room 101. They're going to just get numbers. And, uh, you know, it, you have to... It, it's going to take um, it's going to take, you know, everyone to identify, like from teachers to fellow students to even these school resource officers. They're there to not only obviously protect the kids, but to to observe this behavior. Remember, people are always communicating. They may not be you know, communicating with their mouth, but they're verbalizing their nonverbal indicators, their body. They are communicating what they actually feel and mean. And one of the things that was most upsetting to me as a parent and as someone who, you know, talks about these things nightly and on my podcast is you didn't have eyeballs on kids. That was so frustrating because, you know, sometimes children who are in homes where, you know, they're only being raised by one grandparent because both parents have given up because they're just total dirtbags. And sometimes, you know, your homeroom teacher is the only person who's paying attention to the changes in your appearance and your personality. And you didn't have that during the pandemic. And I, I, I really have the feeling that these last couple shooters, you know, they were taken out of society at a time in their development where it was really important for them to be around people and that just metastasized and it made them so antisocial that when they got back into a social setting, they couldn't handle it and they, they didn't have an appropriate response and it just it just flipped that psychotic switch. Well, one of the things that was most upsetting to me, you know, other than 
the the law enforcement, the lack of response and the frustration on the part of the the non-Uvalde cops and federal law enforcement not being able to go in. The thing that was so frustrating was his mom coming out and saying, don't judge him. You don't know what he was going through. It's like, lady, I don't give a rip what he was going through. I will absolutely judge him. I will judge him all the way to hell because that where that's where he is right now. You know, his soul is rotten. He's a horrible person. His parents are horrible people. And I will absolutely judge them for giving up on a kid who was difficult and foisting him on grandparents who are not capable of dealing with them. So shame on them and shame on people who feel that their children are no longer their responsibility and they can just dispose of them and throw them away to grandparents or anybody else so they can go live their selfish lives. Uh, They are absolutely compounding the problem that we have with these boys. And I I reserve a special form of, you know, very acidic judgment for those parents. Yeah. Well, I agree with you on that. And and it goes back to, again, to even if you think about uh, what happened there with the Stoneman Douglas killer, here's an individual who was committing um, violations um, crimes on the outside, but behavior and violations in school that, was, that you know, he's getting pats on the wrist. No, we're going to try and not, you know, let's not ruin this, this young man's life. Then he's on the outside committing crimes, felonies and so forth. But what, what was happening is that breakdown between how school was administering this discipline and how the outside was administering discipline and how they were not communicating. And uh, again, is there an opportunity? Is, is there something in our educational system where uh, the teachers can meet on a on a monthly basis and share their concerns? Because if you look at Virginia Tech, there were triggers and warnings that Cho was writing. He was writing out what his feelings. But no, I don't. I don't want to. You know, I trust. You know, I don't want to lose. He trust. He needs to trust me. I'm his English teacher. Well, guess what? Look what happened at Virginia Tech. So you really have to have a professional force uh, on the safety and security side that is able to assess uh, the behaviors and, you know, be able to work and have a have a monthly meeting so they can share their concerns with with the security force. They're not there just to to to, you know, drive traffic and to point fingers. They're there to support and to protect. All right. We got more of this interview after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. The first time my mom had cancer, it was was a really interesting process. They had uh, something called a tumor board where the oncologists and the surgeons and the radiologists all got together and they talked about the different cases and and how uh, these cases were evolving and changing and and how they could treat things together. And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, just putting it on law enforcement, it's not enough. It's actually, it's gotten too far. But, you know, let's say you find yourself like, what should I be telling my daughters in middle school and high school? What should I be telling them about if God forbid something like this happens in their school? 
Well, you know, it's very difficult to choreograph an active shooter response. When you look at a fire drill, sure, right? The, the buildings on fire move away from the building and seek shelter or get away. In, in an active shooter scenario, you have to be, you have to survive. There's two things. Either get away from gunfire and get away from the building if you can safely. And the other is, how can I lock myself down? How can I seek shelter? Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a proponent of, of hiding. I'm not saying hiding, you know, because what if somebody wants to get into that room, you know, and you're hiding under a desk, you have to seek shelter, put yourself in an area that is cover, cover versus concealment, something that can stop a, a bullet. And at the same time, be ready to survive. God forbid you had to. Does that mean picking up an environmental weapon, a stapler, something? Possibly. But, you know, it's very difficult how you deliver this message to a, a, you know, a fourth grader versus a 10th grader. And the key thing for them is, of course, to be uh, vigilant, be aware. You don't want them walking through the school as a SWAT operator. You know, you don't want to instill fear. But at the same time, you have to make them aware of where are your surroundings? You know, where are the exits? What will you do? And I have an example. My daughter was who's 18. She just graduated from high school. Uh, during the last two months of her high school, there was a fire uh, drill or actually it was a fire alarm that was pulled and the kids started moving to leave the, the classroom. And she went to the front of the door. She looked down the hallway. She said, something's not right. I don't think this is a fire drill. It wasn't announced. It wasn't planned. And she basically took control of the class and said, look, we're close enough to that exit door. Let's all run out and go to the muster spot. And let's go. And there she went with her class. Well, we come to find out that someone had pulled the fire drill. That kid had also weapons at home. And the following day, he was going to do an active shooter. Whoa. So, again, and she wasn't alone. There were other students that were like minded and had done this and, you know, and had taken precautions to get away uh, quickly. So I commend her for that. But at the same time, it's very sad that these kids now have to you know, we have to train them and they have to be, you know, instead of learning, they're also thinking about how am I going to survive, uh, uh, God forbid, an incident like this. I know. I'm, and that's that's what I think about as a parent all the time. Like what our kids are going through, uh, you know, what they're being put through, they're really having the joy of innocent childhood taken away from them because they have to worry about this stuff and they all hear about it. They all talk about it. Even little kids hear about it, you know, and, and their parents have to warn them. It used to be like in the 70s and 80s, stranger danger like stay away from the guy with a creepy van like you know right. never go with someone to look for a puppy things like that but you know now it's it's deadly and then you have the pandemic and kids being told that they have to wear masks or they're going to kill people that they're going to kill their grandparents and they're going to kill their teachers if they don't mask up and they're the problem and you know and and then you have critical race theory and things like that on top of that where kids are made to feel guilty about things that they have no choice in at all whatsoever. So it's like those things compounded. It is it is so damn hard. That's why I do not feel bad taking my kids on fun vacations. I don't feel bad at all. Yeah. I apologize to no one. And I hope when they grow up, uh, they're happy that they had a good time and they were slightly exhausted. Um, yeah. But, you know, just where do we where do we go from here? I know you have a company that you you have created this technology that goes right to police departments. Uh, describe what that is. Right. So uh, when, when there's an emergency, when there's a an active shooter, what, what do you have to do? You know, you have to seek shelter. You have to get safe first, you know, right? And then 
And when any emergency, what do we do? We call 911. So what we've done is we've been able to uh, put panic buttons, which have been around for, for quite some time, except what we do now is these panic buttons are linked directly into the 911 center. In other words, they, they would go right into a dispatcher and it comes up on a console, on our console, where it gives that, that dispatcher the actual physical address, the room number, and a map of where the button was pressed. So now that police officer or that sheriff's deputy that might be writing a report down the around the corner gets that information immediately. It also goes to law enforcement, of course, into their cell phones, into the emails and so forth. So instead of forcing someone to run, hide, whip out their phone, call 911, which then goes into a call taker, which then says, what town are you? What city? Oh, okay. And then gets you to a dispatcher. This is going right into and providing situational awareness to that person. So then we can mobilize first responders. At the same time, that notification goes to all the phones, into our consoles that are spread out throughout the school and organizations. And those those victims, those those teachers, those students, those people that are within the organization are getting the same information. So now they can start moving into their protocols, whether it's run, hide, fight or, you know, or Alice, whatever protocols they're using, they get that information and they can start surviving the incident. What will law enforcement internalize from Uvalde going forward, like police departments across the country? What will they be teaching in police academies? Uh, You know, what will your sergeant be telling you if you're a local cop in light of this? Sure. Well, first, we have to understand that years ago it was there's an incident. Wait for SWAT surround call out and wait for SWAT. They'll be here in a minute and then we'll go in. Well, no. That that's changed. Let's now they and then they went to wait until you get, you know, four people. Let's go in with the diamond. And then we said, no, finally, we're down to, hey, you're a cop. You're an SRO. You've got a vest. You've got a gun. You've got a badge. Get your ass in there and move, move towards the threat and neutralize. That's what's got to be done. Now, that is being taught nationwide in most academies. But we also have law enforcement officers that maybe started in the late 80s, maybe started when this uh, when the original tactics and and, and techniques were developed. Maybe they froze up. I don't know. Uh, But it is what is being taught for the most part uniformly is is you're on scene, you're alone, go towards the threat and neutralize. That's what has to be done. Why so, didn't they do that in Uvalde, though? Like, what? what is the, the rationale there? Because, you know, that was something, it was, it was pretty obvious the day it was happening. You know, it's like, and parents, parents were being apprehended. You know, they're trying to go inside. And, you know, sure. that, that dad, so heartbreaking, his daughter died, and he was trying desperately to get in there, and the cops were doing nothing why weren't they doing anything? Yeah, it was very gut wrenching. And, and I think, you know, again, I believe that the incident commander and this is what he believed is that it went from a, an active shooter into a hostage or a barricaded suspect. And there are different uh, standard operating procedures to deal with that. But realistically, you start talking about an active shooter in a school. Let's stop right there. You have to engage that shooter. You know, so uh, how and why they shifted their tactics and held, you know, and stood down was beyond me. Uh, Obviously, you know, I don't want to sound like a Monday morning quarterback, but I would never have done that. The folks that I've trained with them, you know, it's just so I think that's that's that was a call by the on scene commander. It was obviously the wrong call. And they they went into this hostage uh, barricaded situation, which in turn 
Okay. If that's how you wanted to go. All right. But what about those phone calls that started to creep in now by those kids? I mean, if I, you know, that, and that's what probably, and I think ultimately spurred the border patrol agent to go in because, you know, you're hearing these kids, some of them are bleeding out. Some of them are, are, are begging, get in there. That's what you have to go. So it's and it. Of course, there's still an investigation. Um, we, we still don't know all the facts, but we do know one thing that parents, you know, and this and my concern, Kennedy, is that what's going to happen now with parents and with the general public is there's going to be a lack of trust and faith. And, you know, these parents are going to go, I'm, I'm getting a weapon. I'm going to go and fix this. I, I don't have any faith. And that's going to cause issues, too, because now you could have a potential blue on blue incident. And that's that's not good. No, that's not good. I understand where the parents are coming from, especially uh, in a place like Texas, where uh, the right to protect yourself is is pretty sacred. And the fact that those kids uh, weren't protected on that day, that's something that, you know, that commanding officer will have to live with. And, you know, same for the other people who made the choice to stand down as kids bled out, Uh, you know, and, and I understand there there has to be a renewal of faith in law enforcement. We also have to have a shift in society where we respect and protect life. And, you know, that, I don't know exactly how we do that. That's a difficult conversation. That is a philosophical conversation uh, that's going to take a long time, but it has to happen. It has to happen between kids and parents and teachers and students and, you know, pretty much Anyone else who has the ear of someone who needs to change, uh, who needs to talk, those kids have to be reached much earlier. And, you know, we all have to work together. Hector Delgado, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. You do incredible work. I know you are doing your very best day in and day out to save lives. So thank you for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in the future. Take care of yourself. Awesome. Thank you, Hector. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.